Story Makers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And, and this, this is Story Makers Show. And today we are going to cover some fascinating topics. We have a follow-up, first of all, on Koo Stark. Uh, not Keo Stark. No, not Keo Stark, who, who is the one of the authors of the Cult of Dunn Manifesto that we discussed last episode. Koo Stark was indeed an adult film actress who dated Prince Andrew scandalously when I was a teenager. That's why I knew about a porn star. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And so that was our follow-up. And thank you to Jane for um, listening and for asking if I had found out that it was Kuth Stark, which we did via the internet. Okay. I thought we were going to go through the agenda and then address that. Well, let's do that now. We just have to get Kuth Stark right up front. (laughs) Well, yes. All right. So then... Uh, our next few topics for today are going to be the subjects of time. <laughs> I'll just jump in <laughs> if you don't say that. I'm say this very quickly. Um, we're going to discuss time and some ways that we maybe could reframe the way we think about our time to really help our writing. Time, time. And we had a, a question. What should be a scene? So we talked in my class about scene versus... Uh, summary and other things and what and I wanted to really get into and this came up in the class which parts of a story should be told in in scene and as you know with writing there's always one right answer so we'll be giving you that (laughs) later Later stick around (laughs) so uh, shall I lead off with time management start us off with time and see if you can keep it keep to good time okay um, well, as a person who is often struggling with the 8 billion different things I'm doing, oh, let's going to back up because we haven't talked about what we're working on. Oh, speaking of time management. Right? All right. Um, I'll start. I am, so I, I met and didn't meet my deadline. It was fantastic to have a deadline. It forced me to figure out act one of my story which was so so challenging I almost gave up on it several times now I feel like I've got an act one I'm reading it through again I I think I like it you know it's I think it's I think it's working who the hell knows right um and then I was gonna send it off and I realized okay I have to there's sort of this wave effect right where I've changed act one and now I have to push that through the rest of the book and I I just had decided that was going to be a much simpler process. I ran out of time. I really did. Maybe your time uh, segment will be able to help me with that. So I am now, I'm really on vacation because my cousin's visiting, but she's leaving tomorrow, and then I'm diving more quickly and deeply back in, and I have to really make a new plan and set a new deadline for pushing these changes through the rest of the novel. And... So there's always this step, this process where it's, okay, what's still left to do? How long am I going to do that? And then let me make that commitment. Because uh, otherwise, it's just, anyway, it's much easier to work toward a deadline than to work toward perfection, which is absolutely impossible. Right. So that's that's where I'm at. And I think it's, it's interesting. And I feel, I'm trying to sort of feel celebratory about the tremendous breakthrough I made because of this deadline, uh, rather than shame about the part where I didn't do the entire thing. Well, <clears throat> what I want to say is there's no reason for you to feel shame. 
And I think it is sort of an interesting thing when we talked about talk about time because sometimes um, I think we very often underestimate the scope of the work we need to do. Oh, I know. I spent years saying I'm going to finish my novel this weekend. <laughs> That's <laughs> right. my goal. Um, so I've been working on a railroad <laughs> all the live long day. Yes. And I I can hear the whistle blowing. Actually, uh, the last week, we got an office, so we're very excited. We're moving to our new office. We're getting very professional. And uh, so I've been working on getting out of my current location and into the new office. In case anybody's worried, the dog is allowed to come to the office with us, um, as long as he has a personality change. (laughs) We agreed that he was a mellow person friendly dog so he's gonna become he that is. he in his heart of hearts he definitely is yes so in any case i i've been doing that and you know i've been doing a lot of things my struggle is that i do too many things at a time and so uh this morning i had a really great sit down with you and with leela who we work with if you hear a whiff, that is Bandit sniffing the microphone. In any case, my point being that I am working on simplifying what it is I'm working on and uh, really getting back to focusing on the projects that I say are important. But In particular, the single project you're focusing on for the next six weeks is what? My film. So say it loud, say it clear. Proud. Yes. Uh, I am working on a feature length film that I'm going to shoot in a very short amount of time with very little money. And of course, those of you who are familiar with the filmmaking triangle, it can be fast and it can be good, but it can't be cheap. No, it, it, can, can, it can be right, right. It can, it can be fast, cheap. It can be two of the three, fast, cheap, or good. Right. So but not all three. Uh, so I'm going to say that this is not fast because, one, I'm clearly laboring on in this podcast about what I'm doing. Hey, let's just go with it's going to be fast and cheap. Okay. You know, let's own it. In fact, I think that should just be our, our new production company. Fast <laughs> and cheap, and they'll have our Strong faces on it. Productions, fast, fast and cheap. cheap. <laughs> and which one of us is fast and which one of us is cheap. <laughs> uh, so that's what I've been working on. Cheers. Salud. All right. And what have you been working on, listener? Do let us know. We want to know your questions. We want to know your thoughts. Your feelings. Share with us. Email us. Questions at storymakershow.com. We'll or get... you can go to the Storymakers Show on Facebook and post some conversation Ooh, starters yeah. there. Yeah. Although I will say I haven't been on Facebook much, so it might take me a while to find you and find out your comment. So you might just try emailing. All right. Should we start with time? Yes. Let's start with scene. All right. We're going to go back in I time. Think, and there's an, I already have my segue, so go. Okay. What's important? She's pre-planned her segue. So I, like I said, am a somewhat scattered person. I am one of those people who has to constantly remind themselves that you can do anything. You just can't do everything. That's a and shame. It is a shame. Um, but... In an effort to get better at doing that, of course, I watch these different things. And recently on Creative Live, I was able to watch um, an episode about what the most successful people do uh, in the morning uh, on Creative Live. And her the and just to say, Creative Live is an online platform for yeah. learning. Uh, CreativeLive.com. We'll put that in the show notes. But in the meantime, so Laura Vanderkam is someone who... 
you know, there's a whole program. But the thing that really struck me was that I think she did something um, sort of brilliant and made very concise a feeling that I've often had when working with writers or coaching and people saying, oh, you know, I don't have time. I don't have time. That is, And that is such a huge thing. For, from our retirees to our full-time working parents, everybody is struggling for time. Somehow. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so, um, you know, and I often say things, you know, when you uh, are house-sitting a dog or when you are raising a child, you don't, you know, I didn't just didn't have time to feed the child. Like, no one ever says, I just didn't have time to feed my children. People never... Not sane people, anyway. Um, so that it, it was always clear to me that it wasn't, you know, important enough for people to make the time. What, what did your friend say about the house plant? Right. She said the investment. So before we had kids, you know, I had concerns because I could not keep a plant alive. And she said, well, you know, the investment in a child is slightly larger than the investment in a plant. <laughs> and on some level, it's true. It was okay. On some level, on some level, that's true. And I was willing to let plants die, and I'm not really willing to let... Mm, knock wood. Yes. Uh, thank you for that. <laughs> in my complete anxiety brain. <laughs> anyway... You don't forget to water them, that's all. Yes. So, and actually, I'm the only one watering the Venus flytraps. So there you go. Because see, it's changed. But in any case, the larger point being that I didn't have a concise way of sort of articulating uh, what was true, which was that for a lot of writers who feel like they don't have time, the truth is they don't have writing as a priority. It's not a high enough priority. And it seems pretty simple, right? But she... I just want to say, there's somebody out there who wants to, like, punch you in the face right now, right? Somebody out there with, like, three kids and a job and the groceries and this whatever. How much time... I'm not saying you're wrong. I'm just saying there's someone who's angry about it. Well, to that person, I say, you are always welcome here and let's discuss it. Because, you know, when we saw that film, This is 40... Yes. And there's that scene where the husband's in the bathroom on the iPad playing, you know, some kind of, you know, word game while taking a dump. <laughs> and the truth is we squeeze it's even, in. It's like not even that scene. He's always in the bathroom <laughs> hiding out. And so, but we find those places to get some of our other needs met, which is not to say you don't have, you know, a need for relaxation and a you need for... Be, you could be writing in the bathroom, though. But I mean, you, that is the point. If you don't feel like you have time, waterproof pad and pen, shower. You right? mock me. I'm, I'm actually not mocking you. I'm just commenting. You're making devil's advocate. Well, Because yeah. the truth is, you do write. You write every day. You spend hours a day writing. Like, you really work, and you've decided that it's a priority for you. Well, and somebody said to me, I said, I can't get up. It was, it was you know, when somebody was coaching me around meditation, and I, I said, my, you know, I have, I have a little kid who gets up at, like, 5.30 every day, so I can't do it in the morning. And she said, well, how about if you got up at 5? And I wanted to punch her in the face. I mean, now, it turns out that that, that time period when I get up before everybody else and write and meditate is the best time of my not my whole day. Oh! <laughs> but it's a magical, wonderful thing. But when she said it to me, just like when you say... I love you when you're sleeping is essentially <laughs> what she's saying. When you say, it's just not a priority. I mean, there's a deep truth to that. 
it's something I probably even believe more than you, but it's it's probably angering. That's all I'm saying. It's just angering to have someone tell you. It's just not a priority. You just want to be like... But here's the thing that I wanted to do. So what she does is she has this little exercise, and she says, you know, when you're looking at the things that you want to be getting done, but you're not getting done, and she's not talking specifically about writing, but she's talking about those myriad... Uh, goals we all have you know I still one day I'm going to be fluent in another language but until then um, you know instead of saying to yourself I ran out of time Mm -hmm. say to yourself it's just not a priority and that makes you feel uncomfortable absolutely but one of two things happens two First is, I know, starting out, I'm looking at my fingers and I've got two up. It's like, okay, two things. Well, number one is that. I like that. One of two things happens, too. <laughs> the first option is that it gives you the opportunity to accept the kinds of goals you put on yourself. Because we have a bunch of, as, you know, Rona often likes to talk about, don't should on yourself. And so we have a lot of... That's Rona Barron's from an earlier episode. episode. But we have a lot of expectations we put on ourselves that aren't really our own values, that aren't really our own interests or drives. So when you choose to change the framework from, I didn't have enough time to, it wasn't a priority. I didn't write today because it wasn't a priority. I didn't do the laundry today because it wasn't a priority. I didn't finish washing the dishes because it wasn't a priority, kind of at least lets you own it in a different way. And I hope in some cases, people will be able to look at the activities they feel like they should be doing. And when they use that different framework of it's not a priority, allow themselves to let go of things that don't really matter to them. And I don't mean that, and I'm joking with the dishes and stuff because Elizabeth is like, the reason it's not a priority to you is because I'm washing them. So um, That's why we had this moment where you were like, I never felt like we needed a dishwasher. And I was like, because you have one. (laughs) It's like that. But, uh, you know, conversely, one thing I might you know, say is just look at the list of things that you're asking yourself to do or that you think you should be getting done in a given day and decide if you want that as a priority. Um, you know, exercise and, and, and often make, falls And you out. have to make choices. I mean, that is, mm-hmm. that's the other piece is... Well, that's not number two, though. Okay, but, but it's... I'm just going to say it's my little 1.5 here and I'm just going to have to even be your 1.5. But the truth is you may feel like you have 20 things that are high priority and that doesn't mean you can do them all, right? So you do, you have to make choices. You have to pick. I So Suri Halverson is a local writer who hopefully will be on our podcast one day. And she was telling me that her first book was accepted for publication. She was, I think, in her 50s and her son was leaving for college, probably not coincidentally that week. And she just said, the only thing I wish is that I could go back and tell myself not to be so worried and not to be so focused on trying to make it as a writer that I, uh, you know, missed this very fleeting time, though it doesn't feel fleeting when you're in it, uh, with my kids. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and it and it sort of, it was just one of those moments where I thought, okay, like, when I say I didn't get to do as much on my book as I wanted because it wasn't a priority, because I was with my kids that maybe that is valuable you know that, that, mm-hmm. that, that those but they're hard choices they're not easy choices no I, I appreciate you bringing that up because I do think it's true that there 
that if you use this framework, if you use this language, it's not meant to be punitive or actually to diminish your desire. But to say to yourself and to be honest, there are some things for many of us that reside above writing. And it might be, as you pointed out, for a window of time. Well, so, right now, and we, you know, we're not going to go deeply into this, but I will say right now, a lot of my students are expressing political concerns um, as coming uh, above their writing mm-hmm. right now. And, you know, part of my job is to advocate for their creative self. And the other part of me is, you know, is like, yeah, there might be a time where you have to just step up and save the world first. Right. And, and, um, and we can talk more about that because I, I think... Artists have a long tradition of being uh, a way of amplifying the message of hope and change. And and the other thing I'll just say is that um, they want to silence the diversity of voices. They, the capital T, they, we know who capital T is, uh, you know, want to literally want to silence the diversity of voices. And so if we don't write, we're silencing ourselves and we're just joining them. We're joining that project, right? So there is a value. Absolutely. There is a value. That's my, I, that's my rhetorical <laughs> response. I mean, I could go on at length about... This is, what we, this is the not, not on the agenda. This, this is, is the not on the agenda. Yeah. And I'm actually... I haven't forgotten number two, so okay. when we're ready Let's to go, go to back. number two. Let's go right to But here's two. the thing I want to say really quickly. For number two. And this is suspense, by the way, which we'll talk about another time. The other thing I want to say is that... Uh, there's an emotional aspect to our hopes and aspirations and our goals. And it can be fear. It can be uh, any number of things that convince us we don't have time. Um, what else? And, and so... Somebody said there are only two emotions, fear and love. So what else could it be? Well, I think, and I'm just going to say, one of the things that... Um, I really appreciated about this concise construction of it's not a priority. So making that sentence, when you hear yourself saying in your head, I didn't do that thing because I didn't have time um, and changing it to, I didn't do that thing because I, it wasn't a priority. Uh, one of the things that it actually also does is for anyone who's been through cognitive behavioral therapy you really start paying attention to the thinking you bring to what you're doing. And this is a very easy way to counter the way we create our own anesthetic. Because, of course, the assumption is there's plenty of more time. So it's okay that I didn't have time today. There's plenty of time beyond this to go back to it. And I think we anesthetize ourselves. By saying that? By saying I I didn't have time today. And so by saying it's not a priority, we suddenly get, I think, a more existentially authentic response. Because, of course, priorities assume a limit. Mm-hmm. You're doing this because there's a limit. So, and, and I will say the thing we never talk about when we talk about how I write every day, which is, which is, a, which is a relatively mm-hmm. new triumph, right? Like a few years maybe of... I mean, I've had it throughout, up, up and down, but to kind of really have the steadfast practice and the commitment that I've had to my writing with its slow coming rewards, um, you know, is that there's a lot I haven't done. I mean, there's a lot of mess, you know, there's a lot of like, 
not organizing the garage and not unpacking everything. And you know what I mean? There, there are these other things that have had to go by the wayside that actually feel important and kind of weigh on me. Absolutely. I, it's not to say that they aren't, but if you were to make a list, right? You think about Annie Dillard's uh, a day reading a book is an average day, but a lifetime spent reading is a, an a day reading a, book, a day reading is an ordinary day, which I'm not sure is true for anybody anymore. But a day read spent reading is an ordinary day, but a life spent reading is an extraordinary life. And I think that we lose sight of the cumulative effect, the compound interest of certain things, and so. Yes. At the end of your life, would you say, like, I feel so good I had a clean house? Or will you say, I feel so glad that I wrote 14 novels? So it's, or will I just be like, I am tired? <laughs> you know, and, there, and there's another benefit there as well. But it's really the idea for me, and as I've heard that, and as I've, I've applied it to my day, as I've caught myself saying I don't have time for this, or I don't have time for that, I also have found ways to contribute um, to the things that do feel important, but to which I have said I don't have time. Mm -hmm. Because then I was like, oh, no, this actually is a priority. So, for example, last night, Santa Rosa had a city council meeting regarding uh, whether or not to become a sanctuary city. And you didn't have time to go. I was with the kids. Yeah. Oh, like, it just, yeah. it seemed untenable. Berkeley. Yeah. It just seemed untenable. So what I did is I went online and I looked for other ways. I looked up the meeting. I looked, how can I contribute? And it actually has a whole thing on the website saying, if you can't come to the meeting, send the city clerk your comments. And so even though I couldn't go, contributing or being part of that conversation felt important. I would have preferred to be in person because I think there is something about the presence. But I did something that was, I I said to my kids, you guys have to be over there while I sit down and I do this thing. I'm prioritizing this because I can't go there because I'm prioritizing that. So right. it's just yeah, yeah. It's You're... just a way to also say to yourself, how can I find other ways if this is a priority? How can I still move towards that priority um, while, while I'm not able or I need to prioritize something else in a larger sense? So what's number two? That was number two. Oh. <laughs> number, <laughs> number two was the, the use of it as a cognitive behavior. Right, what's number behavior. one? So number one was looking at what you have on your plate and really getting honest with yourself about what's yours and what is something else. What, who, who has these ideas? Who has these values? Uh, and it might be very liberating to say, you know what, this isn't a priority and to let those things go that you continue to anesthetize yourself by saying, I don't have time mm. and just acknowledge, I don't actually care that much about this thing. Yeah. I have a relative I need to call. And I I was this morning thinking I I actually don't I don't want to call this person, <laughs> you know. And we should cut that. We're gonna cut, cut that, that out. Cut that out. <laughs> you love when people do that on a podcast. You're like, Joe, cut that out, and then you totally it just keeps running. That's gonna happen here. All right. So the next question I want to bring up right now okay. is that if I was writing. How do I know what should be a scene? Right, before we segue, because I remember I have a segue. Oh, you do have a segue. I want to talk, I want to just review. So what the takeaways for people, for writers, from this insight about time. So what can people concretely do at this point? Look at what's on your plate. 
Well, concretely, which I think I just said, was when you feel like you don't have time to get to a project that you language as being important, use that phrase. Just try it on. It'll feel uncomfortable, but use that phrase and figure out, use it as a tool to decide what actually is a priority Mm -hmm. and then use it as a tool to... um, help you figure out what you can do even in a small way if it is a priority and i'll just i'll just say that um there are some things there once you approach it that way you may be able to put other kinds of support into place so like this has to happen but maybe you don't have to do it Mm -hmm. and so you can be like okay it's a priority that this happened but maybe you can get some help with that piece or you know what i mean so i think there are ways you might be able to and actually what's Juggle. interesting is, is as you talk about that, I want to make a plug for anybody who lives in an area that has a time bank because time banks are really cool. They're not. Um, a so a time bank is not bartering like I'll do this and you do that. It's that you basically say, and it doesn't have to be like what you do for a living. It doesn't have to be anything. It's like, let's say what you are is a copywriter, but what you want to offer to the time bank is an hour of weeding or gardening or something like that the time bank allows you to help people who want help in particular areas and get help Mm. where you need help Mm. so look around i know sebastopol has one um and i it's not unique to sebastopol so look around for a time bank because it doesn't mean you have to have the money to afford regular help what it means is You can look at those other things that you find joy in and contribute to somebody else's experience and get help on your experience. There was a family we went to preschool with who had been part of some group where like once a month or once a week or something, they would all gather at at a different person's house and just do whatever needed to be done Mm -hmm. for that house. And it's so fun to be a group, you know, painting something or fixing something where it's so hard to be an individual finding finding time to do it and they potluck and whatever. And I just... It's really exciting to me because I really encourage writers to meet in cafes and to do those mm-hmm. things. But I wonder if there might be a way to co-op on the other priorities in life. Absolutely. Your time. And I think it, it, the, the reason I bring up the time bank is because often those are pre-existing forms that you can just plug into. Yeah, Sometimes cool. it's very hard to be the one who initiates that big project right. and getting that going. And we don't want you to waste your precious writing time <laughs> starting something. But if you have something like a time bank or if that sounds like something that you already know, oh, these four people would be great and we can just pop it and do that, then that's another model. So cool. All right. So my segue about this is that seeing the difference between, because you were going to ask me about, okay, well, what's the difference between seeing and summary vivid summary say or scene and narration right what is so there's what is scene scene and then when should there be a scene okay so what is a scene what is vivid summary assumes that there's drab summary well okay so so one of the things um in the alice laplante book um which i'll put in the show notes about writing short stories or something um anyway she says that um that the whole sort of show don't tell idea is really it's just easier to tell badly than it is to show badly because what what you want to do in writing is bring in vivid sensate detail concrete specific maybe quirky like ground you know grounded and so when you're telling it's really easy to go very abstract 
When you're in a scene, when you're showing, you're much more likely to stick to the particulars, to show, to use sensate detail. In fact, vivid summary, what I call vivid summary, has the same kind of sensate grounded detail, what's what it's just moving through time or through space much more quickly. It's not in in real time. It's not unfolding beat by beat. It's instead looking at, you know, the in a paragraph the history of a place or a decade or so a in year. film mm-hmm. montage. In montage. And, exactly. and in actually what strikes me is you're talking about the sort of I would say specific detail is uh in Pixar's Up. Okay. And there, you know, there's a lot of different moments, but what they... There's a lot of different moments, but what they really, really kind of hit hard is that at the end of whatever kind of day, this couple goes and they sit in their, sit in their chairs, and there's a his chair and a her chair because it's them. them. And then after she dies... He sits in his chair and there's nobody in the chair. Right. Right. And so the montage gives us this whole history of this relationship, but the specific detail of the chair and its emptiness Mm -hmm. gives us that emotional hit that we often associate with scene. And that was probably landing in a moment. Like there's probably Mm -hmm. a montage of all the days that end in the chair, da da da. But then when we slow down, Mm -hmm. and that's the time segue, right? So so when we drop into real time, that's when we're in scene. And what see in film you can't actually do a montage that's like, here's a generic chair or a generic feeling of love you know it would be it would be as if in a film you suddenly just had well like a, a, a cue card well or, no there are generic i mean like people you know jogging towards each other well, in there are fields there are images, but 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 i mean what you can do in prose is like the equivalent of just turning the screen a color and writing like the word love right when right. you go really abstract so that's the part that tell that you want to not do you're in your telling mm-hmm. stuff. So scene is that when you drop into so 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 there's a lot of fantastic vivid summary and sometimes you want to move through a year or a decade or across geographic space and time in that kind of summary and people do it fantastically. You know, um, Middlesex has great like sweeping sort of here's the history of Detroit in this time mm-hmm. or like um, I had pulled an example from Toni Morrison. You know, she starts with establishing a place and it's got a okay. Whole how history. about Charlie Kaufman? And the beginning of, oh, geez, I'm going to forget this right now. Adaptation? It's not adaptation. It's, um, oh, it might be adaptation. It's all of, you know, he starts at the beginning of the world, and then he goes through, and it's it's just one in the rise of the dinosaurs, and then people, and then buildings, and then, so. Yeah, and the, actually in the January 30th, 2017 New Yorker, so the latest one-ish, um, there's a, the short story. Um, by Alex Olin called Quarantine has a lot of really wonderful vivid summary and in a few pages it goes through kind of decades of this woman's life and then it drops in for these key scenes about this friendship and it's really wonderful. And so I think that one of the Questions here again. So I think we've isolated the difference between scene and other things. So here's the question. And and, and we're going to wrap this up in a few minutes but but first we're going to give that one right answer. So one of, one of the things my students were asking is, when do you use scene versus summary? Like when, and, you know, when do you want to open up 
drop into real time, go into the moment by moment. And because you teach structure and you, you kind of do this through a process of isolating sort of the key scenes, I thought you would be an interesting person to ask about this. What is a moment that needs to be blow by blow? Well, you know, before we sat down, I was sort of thinking the easiest answer, of course, is to look at the moments in your story that really require that kind of focus because it slows you down, right? It slows Mm -hmm. you down. You could have, there are entire stories that are completely summary. So the easy answer is uh, heightened emotional moments, Mm -hmm. uh, places where you want to be really clear on subtext, which is not, I get ironic to say. Um, Is it? But as I was sitting here, kind of thinking about this question ahead of time, I then also thought, as I often do, of uh, Virginia Woolf Mm -hmm. and the death of Mrs. Ramsey happening in brackets offstage. So Mm -hmm. there are choices. So I would say, like, if you're a writer who's coming to it writing and relatively new, then I would start with a basic framework of... If I pulled everything else out and I only had these scenes, would it still hold together in a particular way? Mm -hmm. And that's how you would define it, right? You don't need to see the trip across the ocean. You need to see the leaving and the arrival, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? So there might be things that you would want to share, but you don't actually have to about summary in a particular way. Um, So that would be my... If you're a beginning writer or if you feel less confident about the differentiation, start with that kind of framework. What is the minimum I could show using scene? And then those would be the moments. And actually, I mean, Ann Patchett talks about when writing Commonwealth that she just cut out so much and then she would read it and only if she missed it would she put it back in and she she didn't put anything back in. And in fact, it's a book that very much um, doesn't, like the big things happen off stage, most of them. Right. It's very interesting, you know. So, so, and then that speaks to my second piece, which was that if you're a writer who's further along, say like an Ann Patchett, <laughs> you really start thinking on a on a slightly different level. Um, you know, I always go back to the fact that Picasso could give you the most realistic rendition of anything that you wanted him to draw, right? but then evolved into cubism. And I think there's something to be said about understanding the expectations, understanding sort of a basic framework, and then moving from there. So you're not doing cubism because you don't have the ability to draw right. perspective. And so uh, when I think about writers who are further along, I always encourage you, know, just try on something, experiment, what is the feeling you're trying to conjure? Because that's a different kind of thing. Um, in film, there's a basic setup. When you learn to edit, there's the wide shot, right? The master. And then you have like a medium shot, which is from one person's perspective. And then the medium shot from the other person's perspective. And maybe you have a few inserts that show what hands are doing or whatever. And these are like kind of static set pieces that when put together can actually make a very satisfying experience for the end user. But for those people who are immersed in visual language, 
That's the beginning. That's the basic grammar. And then I understand what you're expecting. I might choose to subvert your expectations. I might choose to just trip you out by the way I construct a series of shots within a single move, right? Um, and who who is really, you know, great Orson Welles, right? Orson Welles does all of this amazing, like, depth shot. There's a scene in... Um, Citizen Kane, right, that starts way outside, and then it come, you know, we see this kid mm-hmm. playing, and we back up, and there's more information, and we see these people talking, and we step back, and the whole time, you, you don't lose focus on the kid playing outside, but now you have these two adults in the foreground talking about what's going to happen to this kid, and so... Okay, I did, this is a total tangent, but okay. like, that reminds me of uh, something that Tony K. Bombara said when, and I'm going to, you know, paraphrase, but I, I got to take a class with her in college and she said this thing that just is so vital to me. And I think re- particularly relevant now where she said, if you keep everything close up, then the problem can be solved by a cop, a shrink or a lawyer, but not by a revolution. And she talked about the need to pull back and to see things in context and to have that wider frame so that you recognize that the solution is not an individual solution. And summary offers that wider frame. Right. Exactly. And so brilliant summary is a necessary skill and probably the one we'll do next week. Right. Um, But one of the things... But I just want to say, if you were learning to write, if you were brand new Mm -hmm. to it, it, I don't think it's a bad that you're writing a story that can be solved by a shrink or a cop or um, whatever the other thing was. A lawyer. A lawyer. Um, because you're learning, right? And as you get more comfortable, you can then step back and think about the um, that larger frame, right? So... Um, which is not to say a new writer can't take that on, absolutely, because that often is what drives that artistic heart. Um, but always to sort of maybe break it down and then think about how you can bring that larger frame in, not first. Whatever feels easiest, start there. Right, and then that's, that's add the no right answer piece. Yeah. But two, two quick, one of the things that you talk about in, in your story development class is the step list and really knowing why each scene needs to be there, what each scene needs to do. And I've always done it from the list of the scenes, then the reason, but I actually have started thinking lately that it would make sense in a way to understand, if you want to just understand story and not that, you know, that maybe after you've written drafts or whatever, but that you start with why the scene needs to be there and Mm -hmm. then what the scene is. Because, you know, it's just interesting to think about when you're thinking about why you need a scene, you know, what, what, what essential part of the story is this? Yeah. And so you could take a model of a book you love mm-hmm. and not even all of the scenes, because if it's a book that you've loved and you've read, um, pick a couple scenes that really strike you and you just, you know, get your juices flowing and then reread it and take a minute and think about why is this scene here? What is the scene doing? And break down every piece. And it might be like, oh my God, well, this is the moment we discover this thing. But there's probably more subtle and emotional things happening as well. Mm-hmm. So taking that time to break down your favorite scenes and seeing what they're doing. And very often, our favorite scenes are capitalizing on all the work that's come before. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But um, but the difference, as I was saying to my students last night, the difference between 
life in which there are many moment by moment scenes, you know, experiences unfolding that in which nothing really happens, which you wouldn't put in the in a story. In story scenes do are moments of change, revelation, and it can be very quiet, it can mm-hmm. be a turning point, it can be the touch, a gentle touch, but it's something where something happens for the first time or the last time or differently than expected. Mm-hmm. You know, it, those are the moments to draw out into scene. Yeah. I think. And um, that's sort of what I came to. Uh, It is time for Steal This. Okay. So T.S. Eliot said... Amateur poets borrow. borrow. Professional poets steal. And this week, I'm actually... I've been using that thing that I was just talking about time-wise, that that very abrupt cognitive behavioral reframe of my priorities. So not letting myself say I didn't have time, but letting myself say I didn't, it wasn't a priority. Mm. And that's actually just unearthed a ton of information for me about what's really important to me and also uh, helping me strategize about if I can't make it happen in the way that I want, what can I do to keep what feels important moving forward? Yeah, great. Well, I am reading uh, The Vegetarian and... um, I think it's Han Kang is the author. I'll put that in the show notes correctly. And um, I, you know, I'm not even sure yet how I feel about it. But what I will say is that you know this woman becomes a vegetarian, and in the context of her marriage and her family, it's very upsetting to those other people. And the stakes become extremely high. I mean, they become you know almost. I mean, they become violently high. Um, and it's and it's dark and chilling. Uh, because it, it sincerely matters to the characters in that way. So it's, so there's something about kind of understanding that the stakes, it, they're not a logical thing. They're an emotional thing, stakes. You know what I mean? Um, it's funny to have a book called The Vegetarian and talk about stakes. But anyway, so that's something I'm, I want to kind of pull out, is, is getting to the core of my characters' emotional stakes and how they react or even overreact to situations um, because they genuinely, like, trigger them. And that that, I don't know, I just, I'm intrigued by it. Clearly I haven't fully articulated this, but that's that's the thing about it that I'm intrigued by. Yeah, I think that um, it's one of those things that I always talk about, which is that, you know, sometimes you'll see people and their, like, characters are doing things that clearly feel motivi- motivated by what the author wants to have happen, but I think that what that's actually indicative of is that the author hasn't connected with their character sufficiently. Mm-hmm. Because I think any character can almost take any action if it feels like an emotionally appropriate response. Right, right. And we all can have really bizarre emotional yeah. responses. Um, just to remind people that Sonoma County Writers Camp is uh, up at SonomaCountyWritersCamp.org for registration. We have... Dot com. Oh, not dot org. Huh? Dot com. Sorry. SonomaCountyWritersCamp.com. It'll be in the show notes. And um, we have a May uh, five-day retreat and an August five-day retreat. So check that out. There's a really good food involved with that. Oh, so if gorgeous. what you want is like, you know, some beautiful time away with really good vegetarian fare, <laughs> as we were speaking, <laughs> to feed your body and your art. Yes, this is amazing, right? And very intimate and agents, authors, 
LMME, doing writing exercises, meditation, possibly Pilates, possibly yoga, wine hiking, tasting, wine. There's something for everyone and 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 more. Anyway. And the fomenting of revolution. Yeah, a little bit of that. Um, have a wonderful writing week, everybody, and thank you so much. <laughs>